0: Well, good morning. When Keith uh, came before the elders for his commendation, he was sharing that, he, that this organization works in countries where nationals are being very effective in spreading the gospel. Their pastors are nationals. But in some of these communities or countries, the fact making that they have a church building sets them apart from cults. And so the church building really does speak. And when you think about really that small budget to establish a legitimate church in this country. It's, I just, it's my prayer that by the time we all leave here this morning, that they will have enough for that, for that church building. So that's our prayer. Um, we're going to continue in our story, our, our series of Jesus Encounters. Today, Jesus Encounters Demons. Um, My name is Tony Anderson, I'm the executive pastor and the pastor of counseling here at the chapel. Uh, This weekend, Doug and Jackie had the privilege of um, seeing one of their daughters get married, so I get to teach uh, this weekend. They have family in town and taking care of those details and, and such. And weddings are nice, but 11 days ago, I became a grandfather for the first time. Yeah. Now, 12 days ago... I look out and I see some grandparents out here and y'all would talk about your grandkids. (laughs) I just want you to know, I get it now. I get it, I get it. So uh, that was a great blessing for Lisa and for me and for uh, Phil and Lisa Frio. Uh, So we're very excited. Let me ask you this, because I said so, have you ever heard that? Has it ever been said to you? Have you ever said it to someone else? Every parent in here would probably raise their hand, because that's a relationship that you would frequently hear it. Because I said so, that's why. Yeah, I was reading somewhere, uh, they were telling uh, kids that, you know, if your parents default to because I said so, that's why, probably means you had a good argument. And they had to just result with because I said so. So let me ask you a question though. We hear because I said so in the parent-child relationship. What are some other relationships where you might encounter simply because I said so? Maybe a boss, right? Um, one for me, one of the most impactful relationships I had was with my high school basketball coach. It was definitely a because I said so relationship. Now some of you are looking at me and saying, you played high school basketball? But I want to be very humble when I say this. Um, physically, I am a freak of nature. No, I, seriously. Seriously. At 55 years old, I still have the same leaping ability I had as a teenager. <laughs> and I have the same cat like quickness I had as a teenager. Yeah, I can't jump now, couldn't jump then not fast. In fact, my coach used to say the way I got a rebound is I would use this big body, push people back, wait for the ball to hit the ground, bend over and pick it up. That was about it. But, uh, but a little bit about my basketball coach, maybe you recognize, this is Dick Vitale, you probably recognize him. Who knows who this gentleman is? Digger Phelps. Digger Phelps coached Notre Dame basketball for 20 years. Took him to the NCAA tournament 14 times and he coached the Notre Dame team that actually broke the UCLA winning streak at 88, 89 games. So he's a very successful coach. Very tough, disciplinarian coach, no nonsense. But before he coached Notre Dame, he coached the Fordham Rams. I'm sure you've heard of that powerhouse. There's Digger right there. But number 40 right here, Coach Bob Larbus is my high school basketball coach. And he was very much a digger protege. He learned and he tried to emulate digger Phelps. And so he was a very no-nonsense coach. What he said went. And it was not uncommon in basketball practices for us to be scrimmaging or practicing. The whistle would blow and I would hear those familiar words, Anderson, what are you doing? I soon learned that that, was not, that, that that really was a rhetorical question. He didn't really want me to explain myself. I had not done what he told me to do, and when I would try, he would quickly just blow the whistle and say the simple words, take off. Now, what that meant was start running. My hope was someone else would mess up pretty soon so that they would have to start running and he would need to put me back in. Otherwise, I could be running for a very long time. But today, we're going to see another much more powerful because I said so moment. And if you have your scriptures, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 1. We're continuing in Mark chapter 1. And as Doug sort of laid out yesterday in the gospel of Mark, uh, when we pick up after... This is really eight months after the, uh, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And so in his public ministry, we're, what we're reading about today is already after... When he turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana, it's already after Nicodemus has come to see him and he's taught about having to be born again. Jesus has already had the encounter at the well with the Samaritan woman. All that's already happened. Yet Luke and Mark, as we see today, both choose to record this as the first miracle they record. Now, I'm not, again, it's not the first miracle of Jesus' ministry, but it's the first one that Mark and Luke record. And I think we'll see the significance of that and why they chose to do that. So we're going to pick up in verse 21. And this is right after the, he has encountered the followers. They've left, the disciples have left their nets and they're following Jesus. They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. So, You'll see we have the the encounter with the demon-possessed man at the synagogue. And at the end here, many who had demons were coming to Jesus and being cast out. In between, there is a reference to Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. However, we're going to talk about Jesus encountering the sick in the weeks ahead. So today, we're focusing on those encounters with demons. So what jumps off the page here as you read this passage? I think the first thing we see here is the people encountered teaching with authority, teaching with authority. It says Jesus was teaching with authority and not as the scribes. Now he was in the synagogue and there was really no synagogues in the Old Testament prior to the captivity. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, the nation of Israel because of disobedience, had been captured and taken away into captivity. And so to uh, substitute for worship there, they established synagogues, which were sort of like local assemblies or houses of instruction. And on the Sabbath day, the law was read and explained, and during the rest of the week, the synagogue might function as a school or some other meeting place. Now, each synagogue would have a ruler, an administrator, so to speak, and they would have elders and scribes who taught However, it was their practice that if a visiting rabbi or teacher came, he was given the privilege of teaching in the synagogue that Sabbath. So in this case, Jesus was teaching rather than the normal scribes who would teach at this particular synagogue. And it says here, his teaching was with authority, not like the scribes. So what would that mean to have teaching with authority? And I think if you looked at all of Jesus' teachings in the New Testament and you tried to describe it or explain it to someone, it's very clear that there was objectivity to it. It wasn't subjective. It was objective and there was no bias. There was an absolute truthfulness to it. He also didn't quote anyone. You know, it wasn't uncommon for a particular rabbi or scribe to say, well, as Rabbi so-and-so from Jerusalem says, or this says, so there's sort of this, we're all sharing opinions, and then I'll give my opinion. Jesus didn't quote anyone because he didn't need to quote anyone. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait a minute, wasn't there times when Jesus would quote Old Testament passages? Maybe think about it, as we're going to talk about in a minute. If all scripture is inspired by God or breathed out, All scripture is God's word. So Jesus really was quoting himself when he would quote an Old Testament passage. But in this case, he was not. There was no quoting of other rabbis or scribes. It was logical, too. It made sense. It wasn't evasive. So if this, then this. There was some linear aspect to it. It was concrete. It was things that it applied to everyone. And he taught on essential matters, not trivial things. You know, people who know a lot of trivial data, but it just, yeah, what's the point? Um, My family says I'm a great person to have on the trivial pursuit team. But, you know, trivia (laughs) doesn't really do much unless you're playing a trivia game. He was teaching on essential matters and his manner was authoritative. He was, there was no hesitancy to his teaching. He was calm and forceful. There was no, he didn't have a, a doubtful manner about him. Charles Spurgeon says, truth is harmed when it's spoken in a doubtful manner. Have you ever listened to someone and go, they just don't seem to have a lot of confidence in what they're saying and the way they're saying it in their body language. That was not true about Jesus. And so he was teaching with authority. It says that uh, the people were amazed. The Greek word they use there is ekplesso, which means to strike a person out of their senses. Literally, his teaching blew their minds. Have you ever had that? Have you ever been reading the scripture maybe for the, uh, shortly after becoming saved or really asked God to open your heart and you're reading because I've never seen that before. I've never heard that before. That makes so much sense where your minds are blown. That's what the people were encountering in the synagogue that day. He's, he's not teaching like the other scribes. It's with authority. Their minds were blown so you think, wow, he's teaching with authority, but right after that, Jesus does even something more, something that demonstrates there's more than just authority behind his words. We see that uh, just then, upon hearing Jesus's teaching, a man possessed by an unclean spirit, a demon cries out, and Jesus is getting ready to have an encounter with this demon. But I think what we want to do is sort of make sure we understand what we understand about demons is what the people right in the synagogue would have understood about demons from the Old Testament. First of all, Satan and his demons were angels created by God until they rebelled against God and were cast out of heaven. We see from Isaiah that Satan has said, I will raise my throne above the stars of heaven. So Satan was created as an angel, created good. But then in his pride and arrogance, wanting to elevate himself above God. And in Ezekiel, writing about Satan and his demons, it says, you were blameless in your ways from the days you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So they were created good until they rebelled against God. The revelation passages, so no one comes up here. I know it's not in the Old Testament, but it verifies what was being said in the Old Testament. And this is also important that they were created because the Jews would have encountered some pagan cultures that had the belief that good and evil coexisted, that they were both eternal. So it's very important that we show that God had created Satan and his demons. And so although they were created and then created good, they tried to set themselves up above God. But as creator, God had authority over them and Jesus as God would demonstrate that. The other thing we would have seen from, they would have known from Old Testament is although demons have malicious motives, God always uses them for his purposes. In the first Samuel 16 account, it's about Saul and David. King Saul was the first king of Israel. And while he was, when he was anointed king, it said the spirit of the Lord came upon him. But because of his sin and disobedience uh, to the Lord, it says that the spirit of the Lord departed him and an evil spirit From the Lord terrorized him, an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. So it's clear that Saul didn't sin because he had a demon. The demon was come as affliction as a consequence of his sin. At the same time, though, David had been anointed the next king. He was the heir apparent. He wasn't the king yet, but upon his anointing, it says the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And when Saul was being terrorized by the evil spirit the servants would have David play the harp and it would soothe him and it would said the evil spirit would leave him. So we see in this encounter how God is using evil spirits first as a consequence to solve for his sin, but also as a means to elevate David in stature in the palace and among the people. And we see that God is gonna use demons for his glory and our good. If you're familiar with the story of Job in chapters, chapters one and two, it says that on a day, angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came. And then God asked Satan a question. He says, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Satan then says, says that Job only fears and worships God because God has made his life easy and blessed. So Satan stands up and makes an accusation. Who's he accusing in this passage? He's making an accusation against God. He's saying, God, you're only worthy of worship because you do things for people. You bless them. He says, and so God allows uh, Satan to test Job through a series of afflictions where he loses his family, his physical possessions, even his health is made, uh, he has suffered through poor health through boils and things. And through all of this, we never, uh, the scripture never says that Job is aware of that cosmic conversation that went on between God and Satan. It's not that in the midst of the trial, he's saying, okay, I see what's going on here. Satan's making his accusation against God. I'm playing a role here. In fact, Job never wrestles with Satan. Job perseveres through the trial, not perfectly, he does persevere, but he does wrestle with God during part of this because he understands that God really is the sovereign over all of this. And he ultimately repents of his self-righteousness and pride and worships God for who he is, not for what he has done for him. And so by doing so through this, Job demonstrates the glory of God to both the seen and the unseen world. So, we know then, so what the people should have known is though that uh, at that time is though Satan and his demons always have malicious intent and motive. They cannot act outside of God's authority and he is always going to control them for his glory and our eternal good. So, Jesus now encounters a demon-possessed man in the synagogue. And the demon panics. We see they were terrified by Jesus' power. If you look at the Luke passage in Luke 4.34, both ESV and the NIV record the first thing the demon does is let out a shriek. Ha! Ah! He's scared. He's terrified. He's come encountered with Jesus' teaching and his authority, and he is terrified which makes sense because it says the demons knew who Jesus was. He says, I know who you are. And he refers to Jesus by name. You're Jesus of Nazareth. Now, most commentators say that was meant to be derogatory because many people back then said nothing good can come from Nazareth. So it's sort of a derogatory term. But the demon is panicked because he says, I know who you are. Just as an aside, Sometimes I'll refer to the demons here because if you look at the pronouns, it appears this man had at least more than one demon possessing him. They refer to themselves in the plural. So he was terrified. He knew who Jesus was and it was clear his goals are at odds with Jesus. He cried out, what business do we have with each other? And in the Luke passage, it says, let us alone. Clear. That's another indication that the demons knew that they were inferior if you think about it, Gil's up here in the front row. If he had an agenda and I had an agenda and they were at odds, I really wouldn't worry about Gil unless I thought he could stop my agenda. So when he says, let us alone, what business do we have? It's again, another acknowledgement from the demons that we're at odds and your ways are higher and greater and your power is greater than ours. The demons were terrified by Jesus's judgment. He, it's, they say, Have you come to destroy us? Have you come to destroy us? The Bible says that the ultimate destination of demons is the lake of fire. And the scripture seems to make pretty clear that demons know their ultimate destination. It's not so clear how they know that, but it's clear they know their ultimate destination. So the demon is asking, Is today the day? Have you come to destroy us today? Because they know of their ultimate destination. And they were terrified by Jesus' purity. You are the Holy One of God. These wicked demons standing there offset of Jesus recognize the holiness of God and shrink back. And I wonder, for me as I was studying this, is my holiness so distinct from the world that it's shocking? Or would, or would the evilness of the world really not see much difference in the way I live and think and speak and treat others So I just ask you, would would evil shrink back when they saw your holiness? It's just one of those, you know, you drop a pen right there and say, think about that. They knew the Son was holy, and they knew their wickedness got them cast out of heaven, and they also knew their wickedness was going to ultimately lead to the lake of fire. So they were terrified of Jesus's purity. And at this point then, Jesus rebukes them, gives them a stern command, and tells them to be quiet. We also see at the end in verse 34, after he had cast them out, the scripture says he would not let them speak because they knew who he was. And so it's interesting. Why would he do that? Why would he not let them speak? And it became sort of obvious since because they knew who they were. If you were standing before a judge or before a body of people trying to declare who you were, would you want a liar? and a murderer standing up vouching for you? No. In fact, uh, again, Spurgeon says, traitors bring no honor to those they praise. Jesus was saying, I don't need the endorsement of lying, wicked demons to vouch for me. And I think that's also another point for us. I'll, I'll expand on it in a minute. We go and we claim ourselves to be Christians as Christ followers. I wonder if Jesus would ever say, please stop, please stop, you're killing us. So he did not let them speak because they knew who he was. And then he tells them to come out and the demons were cast out. The demons were cast out because Jesus said so. Because Jesus said so. Now I go back to when I was, my son was in the home and I would simply say, because I said so. That didn't mean he was always going to do it. And there was still that evaluation of, I know what he wants me to do. I think I know what the possible consequences are. But he could go through that risk-reward analysis, you know. The demons didn't have that ability here. They had to leave simply because Jesus said so. This was an absolute power encounter. An epic power encounter. Jesus spoke, they had to leave. There was no, well, we'll think about it. They had to leave. And I can't help but think that the Jews in that day would think back to Genesis chapter one, where eight times in the creative process, God said, and it was. So right now we have people who are sitting there, they're watching, their minds were blown by his teaching and then immediately Jesus demonstrates not only is there authority in my word, there is power in my word. So why would, why would Jesus cast out demons? Why would he do this? And why would Mark and Luke say this is the first thing we're going to write about? First miracle we're going to record? Well, I think there are uh, th- three reasons for us to consider. First of all, is casting out the demons de- simply demonstrated who, got, who Jesus was and is. His teaching had authority, and then he immediately demonstrated power, not only over the physical world, but the spiritual world as well. There was power behind his word. See, the Jews should have understood that God created Satan and his demons and had authority over the demons. And so if that's true, and this, per- this Jesus is teaching with authority and exercising the same authority and power over the demons then they ought to put two and two together. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. Now we'll see whether or not they actually put two and two together uh, in a minute. The other thing is Jesus did and does good. Jesus is loving. He always is working for our eternal good. In the world though, there are two facets of evil, two aspects. There's a situational evil and there is moral evil. As a person, I might experience situational evil. That's suffering that comes from simply living in a sin-cursed world. Death, illness, wickedness of others toward me, but then my moral evil is the sin I commit, okay? That's the sin we commit, our sin, our lies, our adultery, our pornography, our unkindness, our gossip. And if you look at the scriptures, every time and every occasion where Jesus casts out a demon, the demon was, cause, was the cause of situational evil, a source of suffering. Never in the New Testament is demonization linked to moral evil in the person with the demon. In other words, there's never a situation where this person is sinning because he has a demon. The demon is the cause. The demons come and inflict suffering and pain, which obviously can be a temptation to sin. But in every occasion when Jesus casts out a demon, he's relieving suffering just like he does when he heals people. And we'll, re, we'll see another uh, case of this with the garrison demonic and when we get to Mark chapter 5. Jesus seeks to do good. He seeks to do good. What is good for us? And finally, casting out the demons sparked debate between faith and unbelief. What were the people going to do with this now? Showed up on the synagogue. Their normal scribes weren't there. They have a, uh, this visiting rabbi Jesus teaching with authority that blows their minds. And immediately he demonstrates power over the unseen world by casting out demons. What were they going to do? What were they going to do? They were amazed, but what were they going to believe? See, the demons, they knew who Jesus was, but they didn't follow him as Lord. What's their destination? Lake of fire. People who hear the word and are amazed but don't believe and live under the authority, what's their destination? Same place. So Jesus would cast out the demons, so it had to spark the debate between faith and unbelief. So we can stop right now, and you guys could go to lunch, have a great conversation about demons and how... and. Really get caught up in sort of that cosmic aspect of it, but why? Why was this recorded? What are the so whats for us? What are the so whats? You know, I mean, I'm sure there's some who here who believe they may have encountered demons, but it's probably not an everyday thing. So is this scripture or the applications here not an everyday application? I don't think that is. I don't think that's so. I think first of all, what we see from this is. You and I must submit ourselves to the legitimate, absolute authority and power of Jesus. We have to submit ourselves to the legitimate, absolute authority and power of Jesus. It is legitimate because it is, it's his. He didn't steal it. He didn't have to earn it. It's his because it's his by the nature of who he is and it's absolute because it is supreme in all cases. Go back to people who might've told me because I said so. Never did they have absolute authority. Never could they exercise it. As a parent, I never had that absolute authority. But Jesus has absolute authority. And the benefit is he is also perfectly wise and loving. So he's always exercising that authority for his glory and our good. So if this is true, let's think about this for a minute. Jesus' word, his teaching has authority. So what should we consider as Jesus's teaching and authority? Well, Second Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, all scripture is inspired by God. The word translated means breathed out. It's actually God's word breathed out and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Every good work, everything that pleases and glorifies God, every act of obedience that you're called to, the scripture is there to provide what you need. Look at it this way. First of all, it says for teaching. So that means God's word is good to tell me what's right. Then it says it's good for correction, for telling me what's wrong. Then it says for, um, I'm sorry, for reproof. That tells me what's wrong correction. Then it says for correction, which now tells me how to get right. And then training in righteousness tells me how to stay right. So by looking at the word of God, I can find out what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. So what I need to do then is I need to start recognizing that I'm not going to just debate this Have you had people who like to debate scripture? They know the scripture and they want to talk about all the what ifs, but they personally don't want to settle on a thing, on an issue. You know, they just like the back and forth. Well, we need to move from there to under authority. If you've been at the chapel or you knew the chapel, you walk through our parking lot, you'll see some of these stickers on the back of the car with the little guy with the Bible over his head. It's because it is our vision that we would all seek in the power of the Holy Spirit to live under the authority of God's word, which simply means when we understand what the Bible says to do, we're going to do it. And when we understand what the Bible says not to do, we're not going to do it. So we need to move from amazed, wow, that was really cool and interesting, to under authority. And so some of the things to consider, if that's true, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that we have to understand that, okay, Jesus, if you have power and authority and you say the only way to the heavenly Father and eternal life is faith in you as my sin bearer. I'm a sinner. I cannot. I am unholy. But through faith in you, because you lived a perfect life, died for me, and then was resurrected by the power of the Spirit to demonstrate that God accepted your payment for me. If I believe in you, then I have eternal life. I can't say that's a way or one way. I have to say it is the way. But the good news is it says, come all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. It is open to all, but there is only one way. Many of us believe that, I believe. So what about those of us who have, recognize that. Well, Jesus also says, do not, or, through the writer Paul in Galatians, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Sort of call this the harvest principle, okay? Not a big farmer, but if I plant a corn seed, what's going to grow at harvest time? Corn, if I can keep the squirrels and everything away. If I plant a tomato seed, what's going to grow? Tomato. Very good. Okay, y'all all pass. But Paul is writing to believers who are Christ followers or who profess to be. And he says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. If you claim Christ but live like the evil world, you're going to reap what you sow. And so he goes on in verse 8. If you sow, if you plant to your own flesh selfish desires, then what you're going to get at harvest time is corruption. That's what your life's going to be filled with. But if you plant to the spirit, if you align your ways to the heart of God, then you're going to reap eternal life, which is not only life in heaven, but the peace and joy that comes in this life as well. So we have to recognize we're going to live under the authority of Jesus. There's only one way for eternal life. And then once we have placed faith, we have to recognize we're going to reap what we sow. And so... To live under the authority, I just want to give us a couple of things that I want to make sure as a church body trying to influence the community that we are very aware of what the authority of Jesus' word says. First of all, as we move to under authority, God's word says marriage is between a man and a woman and that sexual relations are to be only in the marriage relationship. Some churches would try to tell you that marriage is no longer just for a man and a woman. But God's word says he ordained a marriage, so he gets to set the rules. And he said there's a purpose, not only for companionship, but to display the relationship of Jesus to his bride, the church. There's a role for husbands and wives. Each marriage needs a husband and a wife to fulfill the the creative purpose behind marriage. But moving beyond that, we also have to recognize that sexual relations in marriage is good. It's holy and undefiled. That's what it tells us. It's a good thing. It is as worshipful to have sex in marriage as the songs you sang this morning. Absolutely the same. And I'm shocking some of you, but that's the truth. But it does say sex outside of marriage, fornicators and adulterers will be judged. So we have to recognize if we're going to move to authority, this is one area as a church where we have to live under that authority. The other one is Jesus' word, put off sinful anger and bitterness and be forgiving. In overseeing the counseling ministry, the number one most common presentation problem when people come to counseling is anger. And I think it's one of those things where we are told we can be angry but do not sin. We have to put off sinful anger. Otherwise, I think it's going to be another one of those situations where Jesus says, please stop calling yourself a Christian. If you're modeling sinful anger and the people around you say you're claiming Christ and see that, you're, you're not putting God on display. We need to be forgiving as we have been forgiven. So we need to move from amaze to authority. But would you recognize that living under the authority of God's word is hard? Yeah. As Doug likes to say, it's not hard, it's impossible. It's impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit, without the power that we saw Jesus demonstrate. So I go to maze to authority. How do we access that power? Well, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, Doug's not here, so I can steal this. Nothing. Can unbelievers drive their cars? Can they drive? Yes, So what do you mean by nothing? Because there's things unbelievers do. Well, the passage says, apart from me, you can't bear fruit. You can't be fruitful. You can't have things that last for eternity that have eternal consequences without abiding in me. Remember that passage, every good work? Every good work is that eternal fruitful work. So if you abide in me, you can bear much fruit. And I think many times when we're reading this passage, we don't read far enough because verse 10 says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So we keep, we always wonder, what does abiding mean? Very simply, we keep his commandments and we say frequently here, this definition of abiding, abiding is doing as God commands, trusting him to do as he promised, a lot of times, abiding comes before we see the outcome. We want to say, "God, show me how this is going to turn out first, and then I'll obey." But abiding is doing as He commands, trusting He will do as He promised, and we will bear much fruit. There is power in obedience to God's word. I think another takeaway, though, we have to be mindful of is we got to be alert to the implications. The demon-possessed man was in the synagogue. He was in the synagogue. And as I studied for this, some historical things, it's, it was not uncommon for this to happen that demon-possessed people would be in the synagogue. They would be tolerated as long as they weren't too disruptive. And so it made me think, again, Scripture doesn't say this, but maybe teaching, the teaching of with authority had not been present in that synagogue. God's word had not been being taught with authority. And so the takeaway is as elders... And for those of you who call CFC home, we must remain committed to teaching and living God's word. We, we would want people to come in here and think to the best of our ability and the power of the spirit that there was, the word was taught with authority and that as people walked in obedience, they were engaging in the power of God. But I want us to understand that for this to happen, not only do we have to believe this is God's word, not only do we have to teach it, and let's be very clear, teaching is not just the proclamation here. It's in our Sunday school classes. It's in our, it's in our discipleship groups. It's in our children's ministry. It's moms and dads when you're opening the scriptures in your home. We teach it, and we, make our, we do the work to make sure we teach it accurately. But then we have to live it. We have to live it. When they hear us say it and what it means, they have to make sure that they see us doing it because what happens teaches, what happens teaches. And we're not gonna be able to influence or impact our community or be uh, impactful in our ministries if people hear and see one thing and they see a bunch of us living and acting differently. Personally though, we have to break, dig a little deeper. Individually, it is possible to do church and not have a saving encounter with Jesus. I mean, demon-possessed man was in the synagogue. So people could be here and not have had a saving encounter with Jesus, maybe even showing up regularly. And so I want to just ask, if you're wrestling with that, here here are just some ways to evaluate whether or not you think you've had a saving encounter with Jesus. These are just a few. But the Scripture says that for someone who has really placed faith in Christ, their life would be marked with repentance from sin. Not just a confession, yeah, this is something I do and just sort of linger there, but it is a turning and a, an a active walk or to seek to bear the fruit of repentance. It's more than just, yeah, that's me. I struggle with that. It's I am seeking to repent from that. I think sometimes people have sort of that mindset of, okay, where's the line? What's acceptable? What's not? And they try to get their toe as close as they can. Now, I understand we have freedom in Christ on some issues where some would believe something sinful. I believe I have freedom in Christ to participate in that. I'm talking more of a mindset that says, if this is unrighteousness and this is the holiness and righteousness of God, I want to pursue this as wholeheartedly as I can. That's a mark of someone who's had a saving encounter with Jesus. Another one is a devotion to God's glory out of gratitude and awe over what God has done for us, we wanna lift him up. We want people to know about his character and his attributes. And the, one, of the words for glory, one of the definitions for glory means to give a right opinion of. So if I've had a saving encounter, people should follow me around and be able to say, oh, I watched Tony this week. Now I understand what Jesus looks like. That, that would be evident of someone with a saving encounter. Or, once again, would it be one of those things where Jesus says, please stop. Please, please stop. Until there really is repentance and growth, stop telling people you're a Christ follower. There's a devotion to God's glory. There's a life of continual prayer. So as you think about your prayer life, is it, we are told to ask the Father to make petition. But sometimes we only think of God as sort of a cosmic vending machine where give me a job, give me this, stop this. But our life's not marked for, with prayers of praise where every day we just praise him for who he is, simply his attributes, his character. Or maybe we're interceding for other people. You know, not, not just simply people that, well, if you give my husband a job, it's good for me too. Just people that God has put a burden on our heart where we're lifting them up. Or what about prayers of confession and forgiveness? I, I am frequently convicted of this where we need to ask ourselves, when is the last time you remember asking God to forgive you for a specific sin? Where you name it by name? God, please forgive me for the sin of bitterness when I spoke harshly to my spouse or to my child. And then how, if that, how often should we be doing that? I mean, I don't know about you, but my sins are pretty great, but I don't know if I'm confessing them like I should. It's sort of the, the irony, First John chapter 1 says that he is faithful to forgive us if we confess. And so as we grow, I think what's going to happen is the sin should be going down, down, but the confession going up because we're more aware and we're more convicted and we grieve. And then we ought to be able to see spiritual growth. The Bible instructs us to grow in Christ likeness, to become more like him. And so simple question, ask yourself, am I more like Christ today here in May than I was in January? Or better yet, ask your spouse, a loved one, do you think I'm more like Jesus today than I was in January? And then be humble enough to say, okay, where do I need to grow? Those would be evidences of a true saving encounter with Jesus. I think the last one, and this is hope giving is, we, ca- we must recognize an act into- no person is too far gone. You think of the character traits of this demon possessed man, there probably seem to be no point of entry. No, he just seems close to the gospel. And maybe you have family members or loved ones like that where you said, you know, I've tried, they're resistant to the gospel, so I've just sort of, you know, washed my hands. I still pray for them. And then, rec- and then you start to recognize I'm really not praying for him as much as I used to. You know, or maybe you're the one thinking, I'm just too far gone. That is not true. Scripture makes it clear whether the person, the lost person, sitting on the front row or is running away from God as hard as they can, they are never too far out of Jesus' reach. So, if there's someone that you want to pray for today or you're one of those people who thinks, you know, I am too far gone, I wish you'd take advantage. We have people, men and women, who would pray for you right outside our conference room. For you in north, it's right out these back doors. In the south, it's out the back doors to your right and around the corner. But as we see Jesus' encounter today, it, I just, I'm just encouraged, like, my mind is blown. His word has power and authority and things happen simply because he says so. And so I want to live under that authority of that word. And I want to make sure that in our behavior, we are putting him on display to a lost and dying world that needs to see the power and authority that's there. So let me pray for us. Father, you are a good, good father. We thank you so much for the gift of your word, which is perfect, which um, is a light to our path. Lord, I just ask that we would move from a maze to living under the authority, Lord, and then experience the power that comes through walking and obedience uh, and the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray for those of our friends and our loved ones who do not yet, do not yet know you, that you would pursue them, Lord, that you would call them to repentance and that we would be used by you faithfully to be channels of your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a good day.